Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, it's Business of Film, episode number 45. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and as always, this is a crafttruck.com podcast. All right, so today's episode, we have got a filmmaker and producer on with us today. Uh, listen, this guy is somebody I've known for a while. Uh, he's somebody I really respect. Uh, I think he is a marvelous producer, Rob Hayden. Uh, his last two movies, uh, one of which is Irving Welsh's Ecstasy, uh, and the other one uh, is uh, the soon-to-be-released uh, Roger Spottiswood movie, uh, Midnight uh, Sun. And uh, we get into some of the more nitty-gritty stuff that we don't often have the opportunity to get into on this show, and that is co-production, international co-production structuring, um, underlying rights issues when it comes to uh, getting underlying rights, like book properties, which he had to do uh, on uh, Ecstasy, the film, and the often unspoken but uh, truest part about this business, which is how long it takes sometimes to get films made. So some really wonderful stories. Uh, again, uh, I want to thank Rob for taking the time for, for being as open uh, with us as he is on the show and for sharing uh, a lot of the knowledge that he does uh, with us. So thank you, Rob. Uh, enjoy this episode. And if you are enjoying the Business of Film podcast, it would be super awesome if you could head over to iTunes. Uh, I, if you have the time, I would really appreciate it. It makes such a difference to this show and to helping people find uh, this show when they're searching for it in the iTunes universe. Just head on over there. Leave us a review. Uh, tell us what you think. You don't have to give us five stars, although five stars is cool because uh, all the cool kids are doing it. Uh, but if you do uh, want to leave us a review there, whatever you think, it's just it really appreciated and it helps out the show. So uh, thank you for listening. Thanks for taking the time. And here we go. Episode number 45 uh, with Mr. Rob Hayden. Um, so, hey, Rob, thank you very much for, for coming on the show. Uh, I, I, as we were saying kind of in the, in the pre-show, it's been, it's been a long time since we last spoke, and uh, I know you've been really busy working on some stuff, but maybe you can take uh, a moment and just tell our audience a little bit about who you are and, and what you do. Well, my name is Rob Hayden. I'm a Toronto-based producer. Uh, in the past, I've done directing and writing, but I find um, just producing the easiest of the jobs <clears throat> and uh i wear many hats i can come on board as a exec producer or a line producer or a, a producer producer so mostly what i do is just raise money <clears throat> or structure finance for films and tv series so you you've had uh, a pretty interesting run at it um I, th I think certainly the 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 breakout it would seem would be uh, Irving Welsh's ecstasy that you produced, uh, what was it now, th three years ago or so? Uh, yeah, it was three years ago. Uh, the film came out like two years ago. So, um, I, I mean, obviously that that film is kind of a, uh, or, or that book upon which the film is based, is uh, somewhat based on train spotting. Um, and I'm just wondering if we could sort of just, just start there from from the purpose of this conversation, because I think an interesting thing for our listeners would be, how did you, how did you go about exactly getting the rights to that book? Well, I, uh, I was introduced to the project through the playwright, Keith Wyatt, who's a Canadian from out West. <clears throat> and he wanted 
wanted me to work on a film based on the play. But obviously he didn't know that you need the underlying rights. Um, he had the underlying rights for the play, but not for a film. So I optioned the rights from Irvin Welsh and met with them during the Edinburgh Festival and talked to him about, you know, my ideas for what the film could be. Um, and he liked that and gave me the initial option for like $500. It went up from there, but, you know, that helped kind of kickstart getting the project going. 500 bucks, hey, that's uh, that's pretty amazing uh, just to get. I mean, what was it? Did you feel that it was mostly because of the connection that you had made with uh, Irving and just kind of your, your vision for the project? Uh, I mean, what, what was it that you think, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to get to, because obviously getting any kind of underlying rights can be difficult to say the least. So it sounds like, and this project in particular and that underlying material is pretty interesting stuff. Uh, did you find there was any kind of hurdles in doing the deal once you kind of got past the handshake with him personally, like once you actually got into the, the nitty gritty of it? No, I mean, uh, getting a long-form deal took about a year from Random House, but uh, the short-form deal was pretty easy because Irving didn't, well, he had an agent, but not really one that was handling the film properties. And he had op- previously optioned um, another one of his books, Filth, to the Weinstein Company for a million dollars site on CD. So they read the book after they optioned it and they were like, this is about a cop that kills people. We can't make that movie. So Irving didn't want to, you know, option his book to someone who didn't understand the material or, or just a big company. So I said, well, look, I'm, I'm not Harvey Weinstein, but I really want to make this film. And, you know, we got the option, I guess, in, or the first short form option in 1999 or 2000. And it took about 10 years just to get the financing together. So, Holy shit. I had no idea that it actually went back that far. I thought it was a much quicker go at it. So you actually got the initial option in 1999. took a year yeah. to get the deal done with Random House. And then yeah. how did you... Did you did you have it built into the contract that you could actually renew it for that many years on end? No, we could renew it for um, 24 months and 24 months, but after that he was just giving us uh, sort of an automatic renewal for a dollar after that because he knew that, you know, we were dedicated to get the film made. So we had financing from private investors a number of times and it just kept falling through. And then finally, I think in... 2008 or 2009, we had the financing from um, uh, through the UK through an EIS structure, and um, then our lead actress at the time, Lisa Ray, had cancer, and she announced it just prior to TIFF. So we kind of scrambled to get the financing together again um, because. After that happened, you know, the, the bond company said, look, Rob, this is a co-production. It's going to take a while to close. And as you get closer and closer to the winter equinox, you're going to have six hours of daylight to shoot in Scotland. So you're not going to be able to make your movie. Come back when you're ready. And so it took us about a year to get it back together again. And we lost our UK financing. So we just made it as a Canadian film. 
although we did shoot in Amsterdam and Scotland as well. Um, but it was just a Canadian film. Yeah, I think the underlying sort of idea here, which is just so interesting about film and so fundamentally different than than TV, which is that in TV, if you know, if a broadcaster says no, or if all the broadcasters that your material is good for say no, then that's pretty much no. You kind of move on to the next one. But your story is kind of the poster child for an independent filmmaker, which is that if you want to get something done, it can get done. It just takes or can take time. And if you're dedicated enough, then great. I mean, uh, that's amazing stuff. Uh, did, did you find that the the kind of the toppling of the financing and the rebuilding of the financing, did, did that wear on you over the years? Or was oh, that just yeah. kind of par, I mean, par for the course for you? Well, every time a private investor would commit and we'd sign contracts, and on Friday we'd be closed, and then on Monday they'd decide to change their mind. It was heartbreaking. It would take, you know, days or weeks or months to get back on our feet again and kind of keep going at the punching bag. Someone once described, you know, putting together a film as like corralling a bunch of balloons into a corner and you have to pull them all down at the same time. And if one of those balloons get let, goes free, you have to let them all go and start over again. And I think that's a great analogy. You know, you just have to keep, trying at it until you get it right. So uh, just, uh, if I may, what was the final structure that actually worked for this film? Well, it was, uh, we got money from a regional fund in Northern Ontario, a pre-sale to the Harold Greenberg Fund, and tax credits. And that was it. That was all the financing. We had some, some other broadcasters committed, but there was a change of staff and they bailed on the you know they welched on the deal i won't name names but, <laughs> so um, in, well, what's interesting there if, if, in that little in that little bit is that at the end of the day all the complicated structures in the world eis private investors and it just came back to just making it locally with a you know maybe a couple of regional funds as you said and away you went it's almost as though had you started there in the beginning and not chased after I mean, was there differences in the budget? Like, did the budget was the budget a lot higher in the beginning, or was the budget always the same? Yeah, I mean, the budget was between uh, five and seven, depending on the cast. And then, you know, as the independent film market was very quickly eroding, um, you know, the the estimates and the pre-sales were coming down at the same time. So, um, in oh. the end, you know, we made it for just the cash we could raise locally and you know, close as quickly as possible. So just to kind of shift gears onto your next film, because I, I, I just, I find it interesting, you know, having had some success with that film, is that what kind of led or helped lead to the next film that you just finished? Or I believe you just delivered it, Midnight Sun? Yeah. Well, I think, it, it, you know, one film definitely leads to another. I think there, what I had was a, uh, a Helen Mirren film that had an approval for financing from the same regional fund in Northern Ontario. Um, but that fi- film um, just stalled because BBC films couldn't decide on which script they wanted to do. And so it just sort of died, although it was written specifically for Helen Mirren. And um, the producer had done uh, The Queen. He had produced The Queen. They had that relationship. Um, so that was a, 
a bigger international co-production and uh and then midnight sun came along and so what i did is help structure it on the canadian side it was a canada italy co-production and then in canada it was a quebec ontario manitoba co-production and so we shot in churchill manitoba and sault ste marie ontario <laughs> So talk to me about co-productions, because this is something that we haven't spoken a lot about on this uh, podcast. It is an integral part to the independent film financing scene, uh, structuring-wise at least. What's your experience trying to pull together a multi-country, multi-regional co-production? Well, because I spent so many years structuring ecstasy as a co-production, I really understood the rules between Canada and the UK and Canada and Europe, um, which are changing all the time. But, you you know, to get the treaty co-production approved, it's usually one of the territories has to be a minimum of 20% of the spend, key creative points, and copyright. it now depends on the territory and sometimes two or three territories, it could be 10 or it could be 15 or it could be a minimum of 20%, depending on which those countries are. I believe Canada has 57 or 58 treaties. And so all the information's on their website, but you really have to ask a lot of questions to telefilm and to um, the potential co-producing partners um, country and, and their um, film office or whoever approves the treaty on their side to understand what the different rules are and the different regulations in different territories. So, um, you know, when it, when Midnight Sun came along, I, I love the script because it's about climate change and the effects on polar bears, you know, set in Churchill, Manitoba, where a young boy finds a polar bear cub in his garage and has to reunite it with its mom or be sent off to a zoo or die. So, um, you know, I understood that the Italian writer, producer, director had developed the project, but it really was a Canadian story. Um, And so we had to get some crew from Italy and some cast from the EU to make it work for the points and for the financing and the spend. But he, he had come with a, uh, a pre-sale from Hyde Park that included money from Abu Dhabi, which was a substantial MG for about a third of the budget, and then a pre-sale to Medusa for Italy. And E1 was already interested in Canada because the previous producer, uh, Jake Eberts, had tragically died uh, a few months earlier. So the, the film collapsed, and we kind of very quickly got it back on its feet again and we're into production within about six months. Was Roger Spottiswood uh, attached uh, at the very early stages or did you uh, or the Italian producer have to go and, and attach him to the project? There was another director named Hugh Hudson who had done Chariots of Fire who was attached, but I believe he was too ill at the time to direct it. Oh, that's um, funny. So that would make sense because Jake Eberts produced uh, Chariots of Fire. Yeah. So, so uh, Hugh, Hugh uh, had co-written the script, um, and then uh, we attached Roger um, because he had done 
you know, a number of big films, including Tomorrow Never Dies, the Bond film. Um, so we needed someone of that caliber of director for the sales company to provide such an MG. Was it difficult getting that kind of an attachment? Uh, just, I'm, I'm curious about the process that you had to go through because a lot of the times when independents are, are in the process of trying to finance their film, it's usually one of two things to, to, to get the ball rolling, cast and or director. And usually it's director that helps bring along the cast. But in this case, you were out fishing for uh, a director. Was it a challenging thing to get the material to him and, and to get him to, to come on board? I mean, just well, I what, it was just a matter of serendipity and timing because he had done a lot of action films and he had done animal films with Turner and Hooch. So he just happened to be available at the time we were looking for a project. Um, I'm not sure if one of his projects had stalled or something, but he had done a number of Canadian films. And uh, he was, he had grown up in the UK, but his parents were over here during, uh, during World War II studying at the National Film Board. So um, he just happened to be born in Canada. So it, it worked for us and worked for the point that we needed for the co-production. So you, you've you had a lot of experiences trying to pull a lot of these financial structures together. What would you say, if I were to ask you, what are the most difficult challenges that you've faced in any of these two films or other films that you've put together? What would you say are like the biggest hurdles that as an independent filmmaker you're looking out for? Well, I think right, like my first film was just having the um, belief that we can get it made and selling that to investors. Um, the second film was more about just the size and scope of it. It was complicated. We had a 14-year-old boy and multiple animals. So, um, And it's an action film shot on ice in the Arctic. So... Um, you have to kind of know going into it what what are the you know elements you need to put the creative together and when getting married to a project you have to really consider to married you're get, getting married to your partners and you have to do a lot of due diligence on who your partners are um, what their track records are and are they the right partner for the project because otherwise you can very easily get burned um, if your partner can't perform or deliver what they need to deliver on the co-productions. I think that the hardest thing really is to get the the funding from either private equity or um, a sales company in the form of an MG or um, pre-sale. And to attract a cast um, that warrants those pre-sales, that's the hardest thing, especially now uh, with piracy and, um, uh, you know, just sort of the collapse of the television market for feature films, the, the pre-sales continue to go down and down every market. So it's it's harder and harder to make films sort of under $5, $10 million, but a bit easier to make films, um, you know, 15 to $25 million, just because there's still a market for those depending on the genre, of course, and the cast. But. All right, so that's that's a very in interesting distinction here because 
one of the earlier podcasts uh, that we did on the show, uh, I believe it was it was the second episode. Um, we had the producers of Margin call uh, on the show, uh, Neil Dotson, and, and he said something which uh, I've come back to a couple times on the show, but it's worth mentioning now. Uh, you know, whether you're making a small film or a big film, that are just as hard, so you might as well make a big film. And what you're saying is it's easier to make the big film than it is to make the smaller film because the bigger films are more, uh, and I'm just to put words in your mouth for just, a mo- for, for just a second, the big films are easier to monetize. Can you talk to me about the process that you go through then when you're looking at putting together a, let's just say that $5 million or $10 million, give or take, budget? What, I mean, if you're starting from a script and you're a producer, where where do you start? Well, one, who's the audience? And um, does the audience warrant or justify the budget? And number the number one, the, the primary audience is financiers, sales agents, distributors, and then the end user of the product. So you have to think of the entire you know, line of users for your product. And how do, are you going to market it to them so that you can raise the funds you need to? I think for a five or $10 million film, you're, we'd probably be looking at doing a co-production, whether it be interprovincially or internationally. And even then, $10 million is a very hard number to hit because the regional funds just don't have enough money. <clears throat> so it's, it, it's at that point where you go, you either have to lower the budget to around five or under or go larger to you know, 15 to 25 because at 15 to 25 for a certain genre, whether it be sci-fi or action or um, whatever, you can afford a cast that's going to bring you the pre-sales to justify the budget. But for the five to ten million dollar range, it's really hard to get a cast that's going to justify the budget and still have enough money to make the movie, so that you're going to, you know, get the sales you need to hit to make money. So, um, so let me ask you about this very practical sort of chicken or fish, or however you want to phrase it, scenario. Because, I mean, everything you're saying, completely agree with, very much on side with that. On a practical basis, you're going to walk in, you're going to talk to a sales company, and you're going to say, hey, I want to work with you on this project. And the sales company is going to say something like, okay, uh, this is great, but I'm going to need these kinds of stars attached. So are you working with the sales? And and then you're going to have to obviously go to the stars and get them attached and bring them to the sales company and then they're going to have to bring it to market, but you got to have the stars first. So you got your kind of—I said chicken or fish. I, I meant chicken or egg. Um, <laughs> so you got this this you know circular thing going on. Uh, where where do you like coming back to the practical realities, and not so much where do you start, but how do you maneuver within that to make that work? Because I, I hear what you're saying. You need a cast. You need a sales agent. You got to put those two things together, but. Practically, in your mind, how does that actually work? Well, sometimes you can get a cast by personal connection and then follow up with, you know, contacting the agent saying, you have this personal connection and that's how you got the project. Can you please read it? Because usually they have an agent or manager or both that's 
advising them on what they should do with their career. Um, and it just depends on the project, how we go about it. But usually we think of how, you know, how can we get a personal connection to these talent, whether they have their own production company or their own, you know, they have a manager. The managers are usually a bit more active looking for projects than the agents. Traditionally, the agents really just negotiate the deal. Um, and, you know, talking about the project, but also the package. And sometimes you can negotiate with an agency that if the director and the star come from one, you can give them domestic for them to sell. They can take a packaging fee. So they're making more money with your project. So it's in their best interest to help you package the film and help you get the film made so that they can take their commissions from, you know, cast, crew, you know, director, um, selling domestic and a packaging fee. And sometimes that helps incentivize the agents to move on your project. Um, for a number of projects I'm working on now, I, I'm working with American producers because they have deals with studios, but even they're having a hard time, you know, green lighting smaller films where the studios won't give them as much money. So what I can do is help them structure Canadian European co-productions, uh, bring a lot of South money, maybe bring a post deal from the VFX company, maximize the tax credits, and suddenly we're at 40, 50, or 70% of the budget, depending on the project. And then it's really interesting for any studio to take a look at to get a 25 to $30 million film where it's a very small figure what's needed as a minimum guarantee for sales worldwide or for a domestic deal. But with that interest from, you know, an executive producer who's got a long track record, they can help contact the agents through a different route where most independent producers go through the independent office and know those people tracking projects. There's a whole other department for agents that are tracking projects from that originate from studios. And those are obviously a priority because it's just easier for them to say, okay, this is going to be a 25 to $30 million film. And it's, it's greenlit because it's coming from this source. We know that this deal will happen subject to cast and director. Um, and also it's, it's, it's just easier that way because then everyone's actually getting paid where a lot of lower budget Canadian films, telefilm and other regional investors are asking producers to defer their fees until they recoup. And uh, according to my lawyer, there's only been one Canadian film that's recouped, and that's Porky. <laughs> there may be a couple other instances where uh, producers recoup, but they're not necessarily Canadian films. Like Resident Evil is a Canadian-German co-pro, but Sony's distributing the world. So it's really a Sony film that's structured through um, a, a treaty co-production. <laughs> So when you're, first of all, that's that's very interesting. I actually didn't realize that you attack it from both ends uh, on the agency side of things. 
you know, normally independents at least think about just talking to the independent offices uh, from the agency's perspective uh, in terms of packaging their titles. So that's actually really interesting and useful information. Uh, so when it comes to these, I guess you could say these larger budgeted projects, and you're kind of looking for that uh, 25% or so, I mean, that just seems like a really attractive financial structure. But still, I imagine that even as attractive that that it, that it is, you probably land up a lot of the time dealing with what you went through on your first film, Ecstasy, where even that 25% is just, it's like water. Just It can slip through your fingers very quickly. So like, do you find that even on those pictures, it's you're constantly going back to the start again to figure out how to get that 25% piece in? Not really, no, because ah, okay. what, we've, yeah. what we've done on, on one film in particular is it's sort of a, a taken transporter slash born identity type film where it's in multiple territories. So we can go to Thailand, and I know the producer there who's doing the Raid 3, and they're shooting for 75 days for $5 million below the line. So I know the costs in Thailand are very cheap. We don't have a co-production treaty with Thailand, but if the story warrants it, we can shoot in a third country as long as we don't spend 25% of the budget or more. However, when Canadian crew travel, those are Canadian costs. And that Canadian labor, hotel, per diem, it's all Canadian costs. So all we'd be doing is looking for seconds and assistants and drivers and fixers to hire locally. Um, and we have a partner in Thailand who's willing to put in equity into the film. And then we would do uh, a Canada-European co-production shoot Canada as Washington, D.C. So it's obviously not a telephone film because we, we're not waving the flag here. It's more an American film that we're shooting in Canada. Um, and there's a, uh, a post deal that I'm partners uh, with, uh, a post company called Torpedo Pictures, and they can do VFX like investments. Um, and it's structured as equity into the film. And then we can go to either Scandinavia or Germany and pretty easily access regional funds there. And then those partners in, in have to access all the regional funds and make that work for them. They have their own guidelines and rules and so on. But then we can access European talent as cast. And then, you know, certain territories like Dubai are competing with Abu Dhabi. So they're introducing a tax credit for next year. Um, they have funds where if you, they can do product placement in films, whether you're shooting on Emirates Airlines, they'll give you cash and airfare. If you shoot at some of the resorts, they'll give you uh, accommodations and catering um, and cash. And then if you shoot Dubai duty-free in the airport, it's owned by the royal family, and they're willing to... Um, invest product placement of Dubai in certain films. But certain films of that larger budget category that are going to have, you know, worldwide distribution. Um, yeah, I, I love the way, I mean, really what, what I'm picking up from what you're saying is in order to be really the most effective producer in the independent scene, 
and leverage all of these various components, you very much need to have a world view of how you're putting your your package together. And if you can, you know, look beyond the borders of, you know, uh, say one private investor in your whatever it is your 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 sphere of influence and look broader into the world markets and all the various incentives and opportunities, there really is a ton of opportunity out there. You just kind of have to figure out how to put these pieces together. And, and then it needs to be a bit of flexibility on the storytelling. So if you're a little bit flexible with locations, there are a lot of incentives from different locations to attract films for sort of tourism, you know, to show the local, you know, to show the local scene worldwide. And, and then it's a commercial for that region. And you can usually work out deals with, hotels or airfares or so on. And that really takes a big chunk out of your film. But then on top of it, if there's certain locations that are willing to put in additional cash through a tax credit or through um, sort of a location incentive, then you have to go back to your writer and say, look, we need to be a little bit flexible here. Instead of shooting in Spain, we're going to shoot in Germany. Instead of shooting in uh, Russia, we're going to the Middle East. Um, and sometimes you have to weigh out the pros and cons of the cost of shooting versus the incentive of shooting. So sometimes, like Singapore, they have a lot of incentives, but it's very expensive to go there and shoot. Uh, versus Thailand, which is very, very cheap to shoot, and there's still some incentives but it takes a bit more work to do that because it's not a government program. It's, it's having to go to private equity people. It's having to go to uh, your suppliers, whether it be equipment, truck rentals, hotels, airfare, and, and work out deals there. So just I want to come back to, and I, I don't mean to be dismissive of anything that you just said, because I, I think everything you're saying is absolutely, you know, on point. Uh, there was this one film and I don't, I don't, I don't want to take too much of a, of a tangent, but it just, it, it just, it brought up an interesting, uh, an interesting thought, uh, because this is another project that, that I was involved with. And it was basically echoing exactly the situation that you're describing, which was when you added up, the cost of a budget, say, to shoot in Canada, less the incentives to be in Canada, you're still spending more money than if you had gone to some local European country uh, or Eastern Bloc country. It's still cheaper to shoot there uh, than it would be to shoot, in your example, say, in Singapore with incentives. So you really have to do the math as a as a producer. But going back to your uh, going going back to originally what you were talking about with respect to the sales companies and to the sales side of this equation, um, because you had mentioned earlier on that you felt that the the independent film pre-sale market was declining. I just want to get into that and peel away the layers on that a little bit. You know, what are you actually finding when you're approaching the sales companies? What are you hearing from the market when you talk to these individuals about what you need to make a film work? Well, they all want the same thing. They all want to do as little work as possible. So the more of a package you have, the better for them, and it's easier for them to say yes. It's only a small handful of companies that actually have access to private equity money or backstop deals or or can provide real minimum guarantees. Most of them just 
try and go out into the market and pre-sell it. And if your film doesn't work, they just come back and say, oops, sorry, it didn't work. Next. It, so, but, it, but is the market, like, do you find the market is effectively selling product these days uh, in in the sub $5 million range? Or do you just do you have to be above five to really be playing in that pre-sale market? Um, no, I mean, I'm working with the, the writer, Marcus Dunstan, who wrote the Saw series on a below $5 million film, but he comes with a track record in the genre. So he's proven in that genre to be a name uh, and his brand works. So we can get, you know, five, 10 pre-sales on a film that he's attached to um, for a certain price. But even at that price, they do want a name or two that's going to be on the poster or the video cover. So worst case scenario, they're going to make money on video or TV. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to produce films in this marketplace under $5 million because there's a glut of product. There's just way too many films being made. Now, a lot of them, like European films, are more cultural than commercial. And there's a huge amount of soft monies available in Europe to keep those cultural institutions in place in France, in Germany, in the UK. But also in the UK, there's a lot of private money available through tax shelters. Um, back in the day, Ingenious had financed Avatar and Goldcrest financed Twilight. They're big American films, but they're coming with private financing from the UK through these tax shelters. (laughs) So there's an abundance of money available for the right project at the right price. But what everybody wants is stars and that there's a limit to how many stars actually are proven in the marketplace. But if you have a a thriller with Nick Cage in it, you're going to get pre-sales at a certain price. If you have Bruce Willis in an action film, you're going to get pre-sales at a certain price. Um, Stallone's career has been sort of hit and miss. So good sales companies who are handling films know who's of value today. But who's of value today may fall off a cliff next week depending on you know a number of circumstances. So it's really crucial to work on your cast with your sales company so that you can justify the budget, whatever your budget is. And I think a lot of Canadian films that are being produced are very cultural as well because they're trying to develop talent, they're trying to develop Canadian actors and so on. It's really only the French marketplace that has a sustainable film industry and even they are struggling um, and they're co-producing a lot with France or other provinces just to reach the budget they're reaching. Well, this has been immensely uh, informational. I, I, I just want to thank you, Rob, for, for taking the time to, to come on this show. Uh, any parting words, anything you, you want to say to those who are listening about uh, the independent film business in general? Well, just what... Uh, what Kubrick said, if you want to learn how to make a movie, go make a movie. (laughs) 
I love it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rob. That's well, the best yeah. advice you can give anyone. <laughs> What's that? That's the best advice you can give anyone. Yeah, pretty much. I, I, you, I, I think we're done with that quote. Like that. That's it. It doesn't get better than that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, Rob, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>